Let us go on with the reading now, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 23 to the end of the chapter. We just sung of judgment. We are, uh, we are going to hear God's message of judgment, of predicted judgment upon the wayward and the unrepentant. Continuing on with verse 23. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk con- contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. I will bring sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant when you are gathered together within your cities. I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I've cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter among the nations and drag out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemies' lands. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths and as long as it lies desolate it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. They shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their father's iniquities, which are with them. They shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, which they're unfaithful with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments because uh, their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their, for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for a passage like this. And we ask you that now through the preaching you might open it up to us and cause it to richly bless us, even those of us who don't stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, but who stand at the foot of Mount Zion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you remember, the thought of the prior chapter, we're in chapter 26 in full, uh, but the thought of the prior chapter, which I broke in two, was that of uh, redemption. Well, jubilee and redemption, but at least at the end we saw the emphasis on redemption. Not incidentally, that's uh, also the theme that we find at the end in chapter 27, when we return and conclude uh, to that at the, at the beginning of the new year. So chapter 25, redemption, chapter 27, redemption, in between these two chapters at the end, we find this extended section which includes uh, what is called covenant blessings and covenant curses. Uh, this is what you find as well more famously at the end of Deuteronomy in the sermon that Moses gave there, the Lord through him promising blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience, speaking to those who are redeemed, to those who are standing in covenant with God. My suggestion, uh, given what I said about chapters 25 and 27, is that before My suggestion, excuse me, is that uh, we is that we look at this in terms of the broader context of redemption. Chapter twenty-six. Uh, before we look at the, th- the themes of blessing and cursing, we look at them. We look at the idea once more: redemption. And though redemption is not the dominant idea in this chapter. We do find the language of redemption in it. For instance, verse 13, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's not the word redeemed, but it's the idea of redemption. Uh, So you find it again in verses 44 and 45. Uh, Same idea. I brought you out. I'm the Lord. I brought you out of uh, the land of bondage. I brought you out of bondage. Another thing that I would say by way of introduction is the way in which what is said here seeing chapters 25 and 26 going hand in hand, mirrors what is said in Hebrews. Now that might surprise you, but I hope by the end of the sermon I will have fully convinced you. The whole way that redemption is put here, next to the promise of blessing and the warnings and the threatenings, is precisely the way the concept of redemption is presented to those who stand within the covenant of the New Testament. In other words, you find alongside uh, redemption the idea of promises and threats. They, they come together as a complex. And so, my suggestion is that the way to understand what is said in chapter 26 is, is to see what is said there, not in isolation, but as part of the larger idea of redemption. And so, I would begin once more with the idea of redemption as it's found in the New Testament and as it's presented at the end of chapter 25, the idea of the kinsman redeemer. And in particular, to look at Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Remember, uh, my, my basic burden in this message is not to say, well, this is what the Lord was saying to the Israelites. This is how they were to be blessed in the land or thrust out of the land for their disobedience. Really, my interest is in saying this is precisely how the Lord speaks to his people today. But the first thing that we need to see as Israel saw was that the Lord is our redeemer. And in particular, that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who fulfills the role of the redeemer in scripture. You have 
the idea of a redeemer set forth in chapter 25, uh, you, you see that the Lord is the redeemer. Very generally, you find redeemer, uh, redeemers in the Old Testament like Boaz. But really, what is said there is not fulfilled until Christ has come. And there we find not just our redeemer, but our kinsman redeemer, our goal. And it is his role as our redeemer that clarifies everything that is said in chapters 25 and 26, as Hebrews will later make clear. Remember, I stressed last time that the concept of the priesthood and the kinsman redeemer were very similar. Both emphasized the connection and the bond of the one, whether the priest or the kinsman redeemer, with the recipients of redemption. It, it, it isn't just the fact that one stands uh, on behalf of the others. It's the fact that there is this relationship between them. Well, that is, uh, that is uh, the very essence of the idea of the priesthood, but so it is as well of the Redeemer. It isn't just that you have someone who is able to redeem and someone who does redeem, but it's the fact that this person was your kinsman, the same idea that you find with the priest. And so we can say, uh, to use the language of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest, but we could equally say, and really in the same way, that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer in all of the ways that he's spoken of as our great high priest in Hebrews. And so let us see once more how it is so, and having seen it, see what his message is to the church as a result of having redeemed her. The first thing that we should see is that he has a right to us. By virtue of becoming one of us, Hebrews chapter 2, he became one like, uh, one like us. He laid hold of us. This is how he puts it. Hebrews chapter 2, he doesn't offer help uh, to angels, it's said, but he he offers help to the children of men. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he did not give aid to, to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, you see, you can say the same thing about him in his uh, role as a kinsman redeemer. He became one like us. And as a result of becoming one like us, he is, uh, and I state it this way uh, intentionally, he is entitled to redeem us. He, he, he redeems us by right. He has a right to claim us as his own out of the realm of bondage to sin and to Satan. It is his right to do so. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem him, then he may redeem with his brother's sold. You see, he's entitled to do it. He's entitled to come along and to redeem. And that's the role that Jesus assumes. He's the one who comes along and he says, I, I wish to redeem them. I have the right to do so. He comes, he redeems. But not only that, he has a heart for us. He doesn't just have a right for us, he, to us. He has a heart for us. And do you see in the same verse, verse 25 of chapter 25, it said that he may, if his redeeming relative comes to redeem, then he may redeem what his brother sold. You see, he may, but perhaps he may not. 
it was up to him. And as we saw last time, there's a picture of that in the case of Naomi. The nearer kinsman redeemer refused to redeem her in the land. And so Boaz comes in. One was willing, one was not. But you see, Jesus comes to us as one who is willing. He comes full of desire for us. Indeed, that is why he comes. So he has a right to us and a heart for us. But I would also stress that he's able to redeem us. I stress this as well because we have to understand what he's redeeming us from. The idea of redemption here is greater than it was in Leviticus 25. It wasn't bondage, the bondage of slavery. It wasn't the repaying of our debts. But he is actually redeeming us from sin. And nothing less than that. The bondage of sin. The debt of sin. The guilt of sin. The curse of sin. All of that Jesus redeems us from. As our kinsman redeemer. Who is entitled to redeem us. Who wants to redeem us. Yes and he's able to redeem us. And what we need to see is. Indeed the whole of Hebrews really tells us. Is that only he could. That's how the book uh, essentially not only opens, but goes on for 10 chapters. You see, uh, not angels. An angel couldn't redeem us. For uh, to, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? No, an angel couldn't redeem us as strong and as mighty and as perfect as they are. In righteousness, they had no power to redeem you and I from, save, uh, from sin. Nor indeed could Moses, chapters 3 and 4, as faithful as he was over the old covenant, he, like us, a sinner, Nor could Aaron and his sons, chapters 5 through 10, for they, again, like us, were full of sin. They were prevented from death, from continuing. They, uh, as priests, had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, then for the people. No, there was only one ever. One man who could ever redeem us from sin and stand before us and before God as our kinsman redeemer. One who was entitled to us. One who was full of desire for us. Lo, I come to do your will, he says. And so it was his will as well. To save sinners. Even from eternity itself. Jesus desired to save us. And let us see as well. He has all the ability of the Son of God. To save and to redeem us from the bondage of sin. And now having done so. You see, we're still in chapter 25, and we're also in Hebrews. We haven't come to chapter 26, but uh, until this message is clearly established in our minds, I don't want to spend a moment in chapter 26. Now that Jesus has redeemed us, he's claimed us as his own, and he says to the church, you are fully mine. You belong to me in full by right. I have set my love on you. I've set my will on you. I have redeemed you. I am the Lord your God, Jesus says to the church, who has brought you out of the house of bondage. I have paid for you. I've bought you with the price of my own blood. Now live for me, he says. Give me your all. Let everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you think, all the days of your life, declare both to the world and to yourself and to me. That you belong to Jesus. That's who Jesus is. That's who we are. He's the redeemer. We're the the redeemed. But how does he work out that message? What does he say to the church? Well, I would suggest to you he says the same thing in Hebrews that he says in Leviticus chapter 26. And so we come next having seen Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. We look at ourselves, the redeemed, and what his message is to us. That is the other side of this. The other side of 
Redemption is obedience. It's hearing the word and heeding the word of God. That's how we have to look at chapter 26. Not in isolation. I think that's the danger. And I don't know if I ever would have thought to preach it this way if I didn't preach straight through the book of Leviticus. But suddenly I see this chapter in a new light. Here God, the redeemer of his people, is speaking to the redeemed. And he opens with the word you. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither of carved images. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and so on and so forth. I was just reading verses 1 and 3. It's helpful always to remember that the chapter headings and the verses are artificial. They're not part of scripture. They're just superimposed to help us. But that isn't how Leviticus was originally given. It was given something more like this. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. You shall not make for yourselves idols, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar or so on, uh, so on and so forth. God uh, there, you see, I'm just taking away the chapter heading and I'm reading the end of chapter 25 and then the beginning of chapter 26. And suddenly when you do that, it becomes clear that uh, the flow is continuous. It doesn't break. It belongs together. The Lord has said, I'm your redeemer. Now he calls them to obedience in a specific way. And in the context of doing so, he attaches promises and he attaches threatenings, which, as I'm suggesting, is precisely how the covenant always comes to the people. God redeems the people. He gathers them. He saves them. And then he addresses them. He calls them to obedience in promises and in threatenings. He calls them to obedience. That's the first thing. He stresses obedience, verses 1 through 2. He says this in essence, having said, having claimed them as his own, he says, I want you to keep the second commandment and I want you to keep the fourth commandment. You shall not make any images, nor shall you bow down to them. You shall not worship me by images, in other words, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. And as, as part of that fourth commandment, he also says, reverence my sanctuaries, which which very much ties in to the idea of the Sabbath. So the second and the fourth commandment. I am not surprised to find that these are the two commandments that we find here. The Lord might have stressed all ten, or he might have stressed others, but these two are especially fitting here. Why do I say that? Well, for two reasons. One is that this book is, as I've been saying, the directory of of public worship of the Old Covenant. The Lord here is stressing the importance and the way of worship. And and, and there are no two commandments which stress this so clearly, as well as providing the structure of worship as the second and the fourth commandments. These are the commandments the people needed to hear. And that leads to the second reason that this book has been all about, uh, if we could call it this way, the old and living way into the presence of God. If Jesus opens the new and living way, uh, uh, this is how God is inviting people into his presence, enjoying communion with him, having been forgiven by the blood, having been redeemed. God is saying, I want you to continuously draw into my presence and the way you are to do it is not by idols, nor in any way that you please. But to worship me as a spiritual God in a spiritual fashion, not through images. But to worship me not as a God whose form you could see, but whose voice you could hear, a spiritual being. Worship me in spirit and truth. Worship me on my Sabbaths. Keep my Sabbaths. 
And reverence my sanctuaries, God is saying. Why? Because not just that's what obedience looks like, but that is what it means to be drawn into continually an ever deeper communion with God is those who stand in covenant with God. You see, God is speaking to his people as a worshiping people, those who dwell and draw near into the presence of God. For that is, after all, why he has redeemed anyone, not for our own sakes, not so that we could live however we please, but solely for this reason, so that we might worship him in spirit and truth, especially on his Sabbaths, in his sanctuaries. Isn't that what you find the New Testament Christians doing? Is the message any different there? What do we find them doing in the book of Acts? We find them gathering together to worship God. Well, look at the message which follows. Verses 1 and 2, I want you to obey. But the chapter really is known for what follows, and that is, first, the covenant blessings. It can be broken into three sections, by the way. God says in verses 3 through 13, "If, if you obey me, I will bless you. Again, speaking to those who stand in covenant with him. I will bless you with uh, all kinds of temporal blessings. Now, I would say that has a a distinct Old Testament flair, but there's something to be said even for that in the New Covenant. There are temporal blessings to be had for obedience. But the real thing to emphasize here is as we recognize that God is speaking to the redeemed, worshiping community, is what he says in verses 9 and 11. He says, I'll look favorably on you. I'll confirm my covenant with you, especially verse 11. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and so on and so forth. The emphasis is on God. It's the way that he will dwell in the midst of the people. The thing that they want more than anything else. How will he do so? When they, uh, when they honor and observe the second and the fourth commandment. Well, what if they don't? These very people, what if they are breaking the second and the fourth commandment? What if they are erecting idols and worshiping them and embracing the values of the world and breaking the Sabbath and neglecting the sanctuary? What then? Well, all sorts of terrible things will happen to them, especially in the context of the old covenant. God says, if you do not obey me, you do not observe all these commandments. If you despise my statutes, God says, I will set my face against you. I will punish you. I will walk contrary to you and punish you yet seven times for your sins. I will walk contrary to you in fury. I will chastise you. I will scatter you and so on and so forth. Uh, The most terrible thing that God is saying, at, at least this should be the most terrible thing in your own eyes and in your own heart. For God to say, I will be against you. I will set my face against you. I will abhor you. Is anything more terrible than that? Especially for those who say, God has redeemed me. Those who visibly stand in his covenant. But it doesn't end there. It closes in verses 40 to the end with the promise of restoration upon the condition of repentance. If they confess their iniquity And the iniquity of their fathers, if they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. I will restore them. I'm the Lord, their God. I am the Lord. I will dwell in their midst once again. I would just notice as an aside what repentance is. It's helpful to see here. You have the picture of someone straying uh, over and over and over. And yet God is saying two things. They confess their sin and they accept their guilt. Verse 40, 
and verse 41. That's what repentance looks like. And repentance is something which God delights in, something that God is delighted to bless, just as he blesses obedience. And so as we look at these three uh, these three things, there's actually four possibilities that God puts before the covenant people of God. The first is simply obedience or viewed from the standpoint of the covenant, continued sustained access or entry into the presence of God. Those who are worshiping him, those who are drawing near, those who are dwelling in the presence of God, a growing intimacy and communion with God through the covenant, especially in their observance, our observance of the second and the fourth commandment. That's what the covenant is, beloved. The covenant is our continued sustained access or entry into the presence of God. That's what we should want more than anything else. That's the first possibility. It's a life full of blessing. Well, there's a second possibility, and that's disobedience, which means specifically in the context of what God is saying here, straying from God and his worship. In other words, strangers from the sanctuary, those who despise the church, those, well, those who do not come when the call to worship is offered, to use uh, our own, our own uh, language, strangers of the sanctuary. Notice uh, here that backsliding and apostasy both begin in the same way. The backslider is the believer who strays, the apostate is the unbeliever who is found out. But notice that both the backslider and the apostate appear in the same outward form, the same outward course, namely despising God's Sabbaths and his sanctuary. That's what backsliding looks like. That's what apostasy looks like. There are so many today who claim to be Christians who are strangers of the sanctuary, and it's always been that way. This is what Bonar says. He says, all declension and decay may be said to begin wherever we see these two ordinances despised, the Sabbath and the sanctuary. They are the outward fence around the inward love commanded in verse one. Or else seeking uh, to worship God by images that he's not commanded in his word. Thus perverting worship, which is spiritual into something that is material and profane. Do you see throughout Leviticus and indeed throughout the whole of the Bible, the sustained interest, uh, the sustained emphasis, I mean, on idolatry? Do you see how much God hates these things? God, who is a spirit, that he would be worshipped by images. But not only that, that isn't really the emphasis of Leviticus 26. The emphasis is more like this. How destructive such things are to a man's own soul. He's backsliding. He's straying from God. Uh, He is perhaps even apostate. Idolatry is the path to these things. Here is a man, uh, we could say, who despises grace. He turns his back on the grace which might save him. He tramples on the blood, to use the language of Hebrews. Ultimately, this is a man who despises God himself and wishes no more to know him as God and to worship him as God. For he says, I am the Lord. And yet man says, I know of a better way. Well, there's a so that's the second disobedience. But there's a third possibility. And that uh, appears from 
the progression which occurs under that second heading of the covenant curses, and that is that a man would continue in disobedience. That's one of the things that stands out. He says, if you disobey and I, I punish you, or I will punish you, and if you continue to disobey, then I'll punish you. And if you continue even then to disobey, well, then I'll punish you. And it just goes on and on and on like that. And so uh, th- there is, uh, God is saying, not just the possibility of disobedience, but of sustained disobedience, which I think we could agree is even worse, especially sustained disobedience in the face of fatherly chastisements. Here God is correcting his people time and again, and yet they continue brazenly, brazenly to defy him in disobedience. Is there anything more dangerous than this? And yet, let us see and say how common it is for a man in the face of such things to go on in disobedience. Well, there is a fourth possibility, and that is that he would do the opposite. Somewhere along the way, God has chastised him and God has opened his eyes. And so he turns from his sin and he returns to God. You see, he's been straying. He's left the sanctuary. He's left the people of God. Uh, to put it in the form of an illustration, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but he's, he's straight outside of the covenant. Now he's, he's, he's dwelling amongst the Gentiles rather than mingling amongst the people of God. Well, here's a man who's returned. He's entered back in. He's returned to the sanctuary. He's begun to worship God again. What does God say? He says there's hope for such a man. Here's the prodigal son returning into the presence and the joy of his father. And do you see how willing God is to receive such a man? There is no reluctance on God's part. Just if they confess their sin and acknowledge their guilt. That's it. Repentance is all it takes. However far you fall in the path of backsliding. A single heartfelt, genuine act of repentance will restore you to the Father. And it is this which explains the difference between the backslider and the apostate, the one who strays and the one who's found out. Well, the apostate is the one, though he outwardly appeared to be a Christian, uh, by all accounts, he's one who leaves, he departs, he strays. Whereas the other one is one who returns and is restored. The apostate despises grace. He turns his back on it. He seeks it not, though it's offered to him. God pleads with him. If you would but turn, I would be favorable to you again. And yet, still he strays. But the other comes to his senses like the prodigal son and remembers with God there is mercy. He hears the words. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if they accept their guilt, then I will remember their covenant. I will forgive them. I will restore them. I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that, let me just say again, exactly what we find in the new covenant? Well, let me come to another point. And that is the emphasis throughout. I've been saying that the emphasis is on man and his spiritual state and and the ruin that sin brings to his soul or the blessings that obedience brings. And yet at the same time, We ought to notice the sovereignty of God in all of this and how strongly that stands out here. Really, the great emphasis is here upon God, that he has a right to do any of these things. He has a right, for instance, to bless the obedient. Don't tell me that this is suddenly the principle of works. It's not the principle of works. You don't understand the sovereignty of God when you say that you're denying it. Does God not have the right in his grace to bless those who obey him? 
You see, we're not entitled to the blessing. That's not the point. You've missed the point entirely. The point is that he's entitled to bless us. It's all about grace. It always has been. And so, no, God, I, I mean, it always has been in Leviticus, especially this of all books of the book about the grace of God. God is not, let me say, presenting a new sudden principle of works here. Let me stress that very strongly. You entirely miss the point if that's what you say. But is he not, I say again, entitled to bless those who seek him in just the way he wishes to be sought? Those who honor his Sabbaths, keep his Sabbaths, those who are are, are not strangers but friends to the sanctuary, those who love to worship him in spirit and truth, not by images, those who love all his commandments, those who love to worship God, those who wish to draw near to him. Is he not entitled to bless such people temporally and spiritually and eternally? But do you also see that God in his sovereignty is perfectly entitled. He has a right to to curse the disobedient. Even such as outwardly stand in covenant with him. There is nothing again uh, which is uh, uh, which uh, somehow suggests the principle of works is present here. No, this is God speaking as the sovereign Lord. He is saying, here is the outcome of such a life. Here is how the sinner is found out. Here are those against whom I set my face. But he also has a right to restore the wayward and the one who repents. And this, more than anything, uh, underscores the emphasis upon grace, not upon works. In all of this, God is saying, I am entitled to do this. I'm entitled to bless the obedient. I'm, I'm entitled to curse the wayward. And so I'm entitled To bring back the wayward. You remember how the older son of the prodigal uh, protests. But he had no right to do so. He had no right to stand in the way of the father. It was the father's right to uh, bring back the son and to restore him. And so it is the right of the father to do so to all of us. Whenever we stray and return to him, he delights to do so. It's his right. And do you see, recognizing it as his right as the sovereign Lord, that he's glorified in each of these courses he takes. Whether in blessing or in cursing or in restoring. It's all about the glory of God. But then let me say this in closing. I I, I shouldn't have said in closing. I have too much to say to say in closing. But as my last point. (laughs) uh, uh, And I've been hinting at this all along. That I'm speaking of the covenant. But let us understand. And this is equally true of the old and the new. Yes it is in some sense more true to speak this way in the old. But it's also true to speak this way in the new. That God is speaking here to the visible church. And I would emphasize that as well very strongly. To those who outwardly stand in covenant with God. The visible body of the redeemed. And that is always a mixed multitude. You can't make any sense of what is saying here in in Leviticus 26. Well, you could say it's the principle of works, but I'm rejecting that very strongly. I suppose you could say that, or you could say, you know, this is a mixed multitude. That's why it makes sense here to bring in the possibility of apostasy. Because some were saved, some were not. Outwardly, all the same. And yet inwardly, well, it was like the field, Jesus says, in which the two kinds were sowed. You have the good and the bad seed. That's what it is here, the wheat and the tares. And yet outwardly, he addresses them all alike. That's the way it always is in the church. That's the way Israel was. That's the way the church is today. That's the visible church. Recognized outwardly all addressed as the redeemed. Inwardly, there are but few who are saved and redeemed in fact. 
And how does that difference appear? Well, that difference appears in Leviticus 26, so that difference appears in Hebrews, and that, that will be the final point. I think I could say finally then. But uh, let us look at it here, first of all. The difference appears in the life, in the response, when God says, I'm the Lord who redeemed you. I'm calling you to obey me, and I'm promising you when you do obey me, I'm going to bless you, but I'm warning you, if you don't obey, I'm going to curse you. How does a man respond to that? Well, I'm saying that in the way that a man responds to that, it becomes clear what he is, whether he's a weed or a tear, whether he's inwardly redeemed or not. Begin with the promises, or rather begin with the redeemed, inwardly. And look at the promises, the threatenings, and the promise of restoration, all three. Do you see how the promises to the redeemed spur them on in their obedience? For he's promising to them the very things that, or the very thing that they seek from him, namely himself. That's the thing they want most. They want to know just that God will be their eternal and abiding possession, that he will dwell in their midst, that he will establish uh, his own abode among them. And this is what causes them to hurry on in their obedience, as the psalmist says. I, I, I ran after the commands of God. Why? Not because of some principle of works. No, because of his heart was set on God. And so the blessings spur him on in his obedience. But let me also suggest that the warnings function in the same way. The threats terrify the true Christian. But in terrifying him, they help him. They help him a great deal. How so? Well, by keeping him from falling. By keeping him from uh, continuing. Or, or, or by keeping him to continue, excuse me. He's continuing in the way. He's not falling. He isn't taking the course of the backslide or the apostate. He's enduring. He's persevering. What, what is it that's doing so? Well, it's the blessings, but it's also the cursing, or at least the threatenings. Let us say that. God is saying, I will set my face against you, and that's all they need. They're afraid of God. Have you ever been constrained in a moment where you were tempted by the fear of God? You say, that's a sin I want to commit. But God is a terrifying, he is a consuming fire. How could I ever set my face against him? How could I ever endure if he should set his face against me? I'm actually suggesting to you that the threatenings are beneficial to the believers. They are the means. I'm not alone in saying this, by the way. They become to them, along with the promises, the means of their preservation. The means by which God spurs them on in their obedience and their faith and their Christian walk. He's preserving them by the warnings. That's what I'm saying. They benefit them. They bless them. But so likewise the promise of restoration. Oh, what a relief it is to the believer to know. If I do fall. If I do set my face against God. If I do begin to experience his fatherly chastisements again and again and again. Yet still, I might return to him and he will receive me. How easily I might regain, even if I should fall, God's favor and his kindness. How easily the wayward sinner might be restored to God. All of these things are a tremendous uh, source of blessing and the means of, 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 of steadfastness in believers. But on the other hand, the opposite is true of the unbeliever, the apostate. 
These are the very things that drive him away from God. For the promises only make him careless and negligent. They abuse, they, uh, they presume upon the grace of God. They say something like this, let us sin that grace may abound. Or his threatenings only make him hate God more. You see, rather than terrifying him out of disobeying or straying, it actually provokes him to sin. And so likewise, we could say of the third thing, the the opportunity of repentance. This is just a further spur to him to negligence and carelessness, driving him farther and farther away from God. Oh, I can repent anytime I like. So I'll go on and sin farther and farther. That's the course of the apostate. What I'm saying to you is that these three things, the curse upon obedience, or the, excuse me, the blessing upon obedience, the curse upon disobedience, and the promise of restoration upon repentance, these reveal where a man really stands in the covenant. They, 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 they find a man out, whether he is really redeemed or not. And as they are addressed to those, who outwardly stand in covenant with God. And this is all confirmed in the book of Hebrews. This is precisely what you find in Hebrews. Has it never struck you? Certainly it must have. As uh, almost strange that the book which is most full of the grace of God is also the most terrifying book in the New Testament. The book which is most full of the threatenings and the warnings of apostasy. Here is the message the book of Hebrews, of redemption full and free in Jesus Christ. That he who draws near to Christ will always find a savior and a mediator and a priest full of grace. Always. It will never be otherwise. And yet look throughout that book and see how many times we are warned of apostasy. How often we find, as in Leviticus 26, threatenings which terrify. And yes, they do terrify. I wouldn't minimize that. If, if, if anything, I would say that what you read in Hebrews is far more terrifying than anything you will read in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. But do you see it really amounts to the same thing? God's speaking to those who outwardly stand in covenant. He's speaking to the visible church. And what both books, Leviticus and Hebrews, warn us of is the despising of the grace of God offered to us. God having opened in both covenants a way by the blood and inviting us in. But what happens to the man who despises this very thing, who tramples upon the very blood that might save him? It is he who is warned and threatened. He who has tasted yet despised the heavenly gift, Hebrews chapter 6. But to the faithful, to the redeemed, those who are redeemed inwardly, those who ever draw near to God by the new and living way through the blood of Jesus, there's nothing but blessing and life and grace upon grace promised to them all through the book. Yes, and they will be blessed to the uttermost. And all along as well, they're encouraged to hold fast, not to give up, not to lose heart, lest they, along with others, apostatize. Or at least, let us say, lest they begin to stray. But even then, the message to them is this. And their hearts are cheered to know that God is merciful and kind and delights in saving sinners. He's full of grace. He's full of grace even to the backslidden and the wayward. So even if they should fall, there's still hope for them if they rise again by repentance. If they return to me and repent, I will accept them. And by no means cast them away, says the Lord. Do you see what kind of God this is? Yahweh, the Lord. 
the God of all grace and mercy. And yet a God who is holy and righteous and just. Do you see what it is to stand in covenant with him? Do you realize what it means for him to say, I'm the Lord who redeemed you, who brought you out of the bondage of sin. Yes, he is full of mercy and grace to the humble penitent sinner. And he loves to bless such as those who seek him in his ordinances, his statutes, his commands. And he is even, he says, happy to restore them when they stray. But he opposes the proud and he has nothing but fury and wrath for the stubborn sinner who will not turn and who will not be saved and who rejects the grace of God. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold, from, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Amen. And let us return praise to God. We have a new, a new hymn, uh, and so we'll have a piano to help us. Pat, do you mind playing it all the way through one time? And we'll play it all the way through one time, hymn 439.